good to be together again on the Lord's Day. It's always good to share our time together. As we get started, I just wanted to say that um, last week, Laurel and I had the privilege of having our youngest daughter and her two boys with us, uh, Abraham, age four, and Peter, uh, just a little under two years of age. We had a delightful time. Uh, Abraham was very much looking forward to being with us at church this morning because he wanted to wave hi to Pop Pop and have me wave back to him. But he was very disappointed at that, at least, because instead of going home today, they went home. I took them back to New York City yesterday. So he wasn't able to be here. So if you'll excuse me just for a moment. Uh, Abraham, just want to say good morning. Hope you had a good time in, in church today. And I hope you have a good day. And so I'm waving at you. I hope you have a good time. And Peter, too. Yeah, so have, have a good day. So I'm back. Uh, so today marks the uh, first day of what is called Holy Week. This week includes what we will be observing this week as a local church, which includes today, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and certainly invite you back for that uh, service on Friday evening, and Easter Sunday next week. Today we're going to look at what's known as Palm Sunday at an event called the Triumphal Entry, illustrated by the song the children sang at the beginning of the service, Shout Hosanna. The setting for today's passage is that Jesus has been preaching and serving in the northern reaches of Israel in a place called Galilee, as well as in most recently remote areas to the east of the Jordan River. Well, he has recently returned to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem area, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, and unbeknown to everyone else but him, this is his last week of life before he is crucified by the Romans at the instigation of the Jewish leaders. The passages we're going to look at today are familiar passages, uh, and there are two dangers that occur to us, at least, when we approach Bible stories that are familiar. One is we often think we know about as much about them as there is to know. We, we've heard them so many times, there's nothing left to learn. And we often don't pay as much attention as the first time we heard them, so we're hindered from learning more. So whether this is your first time hearing about Palm Sunday or your 101st time, let's ask God together to teach us something new from his word today. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity we have to uh, be together this morning. I thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. Thank you for the reminders that the children gave us and the, the worship arts team gave us of the blood of Jesus Christ and Jesus coming as our King. And we celebrate that time today and I pray we'd celebrate every day of our lives. But I pray now that you would guide us for those of us who know, who do not know this story, for whom it's a new story, I pray that you would teach us something new about you today. And for those of us for whom this is an old story, I pray that you would open our hearts to see some new things or re be reminded of some old things that would help us in our journey. So we trust that your spirit is here to accomplish your purpose and lead us in what you know we need today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain accounts of this event. The, all four Gospels don't always contain accounts of every story, but this particular one is contained by all four Gospels. And we'll be referring primarily to the passages in Matthew and Luke. And to make things easy for you, I really would like to encourage you to follow along in the Bible as I speak. You can do that either in the print Bible, I'll let you know where we're going, obviously electronically. But we also printed out in your bulletins the verses in order that we'll be dealing with them from Matthew and Luke uh, so that you can follow there. So whatever. But I strongly encourage you to follow as I speak. I think it helps us uh, to have more than one sense at play. Don't just listen to me. You can be reading as well. Also, you really need to check out and make sure I'm not trying to slip something by you. Uh, you got, need to keep me honest. So that's why it's important for you to check these things out yourself. So the first thing we're going to look at actually is in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 8, uh, what I called On the Road to Jerusalem. On the Road to Jerusalem. The events are simple enough to understand. Jesus and his followers are approaching Jerusalem. Jesus is going into Jerusalem from a place right outside the city. He tells us he's at Bethphage. And he decides to go into the city by riding on a donkey instead of walking. Verse 1 says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, well, let's just stop right there. This is a very significant statement beyond its seemingly mundane description of Jesus' current geographical location. Not long before this, Jesus told his followers, the disciples, the purpose of this particular trip to Jerusalem. Matthew 16, 21 is one of those places. And it says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. This trip was a necessity. He must go to Jerusalem. And let us not underestimate the significance of this event. This was not some sightseeing trip to Jerusalem. Nor was this a trip to Jerusalem to attend one of the many annual Jewish holy celebrations, which he had done numerous times in the past. He had to go to Jerusalem, and he had to go at this time because this trip to Jerusalem was the very reason that Jesus left heaven. This particular trip to Jerusalem was the very reason that Jesus left heaven, to suffer, to be killed on the cross, and to rise on the third day, making a way for us to have peace with God. It's also no accident that he comes to Jerusalem during Passover week. Passover was the holiday when the Jews remember how in Egypt, God saved their firstborn children from death through the death of a sacrificial lamb on their behalf. Jesus is now coming as the perfect lamb of God who will die to save from eternal death those who believe in him. Also, Jesus' use of a donkey to ride into Jerusalem is simple enough to understand, even though how he got it was a bit unconventional. You look at verse uh, 2, he said to his disciples, he sent two of them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, 
They'll send them at once. So he sends them to this unknown place. They go in and they say, you're going to find these donkeys? Bring them here. Well, that's simple enough. They do this. And then verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So they bring the donkeys. They take off their outer garments, their cloaks, lay it over the don one of the donkeys. Well, it says laid it over them, so presumably laid it over both donkeys, and he sat, I'm assuming, on one of them, for him to ride on as he rode in. And then in verse 8, there's a large crowd that's been following Jesus. As, you go, as we go through the Gospels, you see constantly there's a crowd. Verse 8 says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Mark tells us these are leafy branches, and John tells us they are palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday. They cut these palm branches from the trees and lay them on the road for the donkey to walk on. It's a sign of honor. But once again, something's going on here that is far deeper than Jesus' disciples are even aware of at this time. They only realize its significance much later. Verses 4 and 5 tell us this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling a prophecy by the prophet Zechariah made about 500 years before this time. That would be like us waiting for something to happen that was predicted in the year 1500. Waiting all of this time, now Jesus is fulfilling that. The full text of Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Hence the title of today's message, Your King is Coming. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. So in this manner, on this donkey, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the long-promised and long-awaited king of Israel. But now let's turn over to Luke 19, starting at verse 37, and we're going to look at three very different responses to this event. And I believe it's in these responses that we gain a deeper understanding of the true nature of what's going on on this so-called triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Well, the first response we see starting in verse 37 is from the crowd. This is in Luke 19, verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they are now excitedly celebrating, enthusiastically praising God for two things. And the first one we see here is for all the miracles they had seen during Jesus' presence among them. He had performed many miracles, and they were rejoicing in that. They recognized that something very extraordinary was going on in their midst. But secondly, and perhaps more significantly, is verse 38. They were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Here they are reciting Psalm 118, 26. Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One commentary I read stated that Psalm 18 was often used to describe a festive procession into Jerusalem after some great deliverance. After some great deliverance. Well, here they are celebrating the great victory of this long-awaited king before any victory had even been won. So here we see in response one, the crowd is celebrating Jesus' coming. They're praising Jesus as the long-awaited king with high expectations of a soon-to-come military victory. The second response we see from the Pharisees, and we'll see that in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a part of the religious leaders, the religious rulers at the time, those who set the standards for what to believe and not to believe. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees knew correctly that what was being said about Jesus should not be said to any man who was not the actual promised king and savior predicted by the prophets. The people should not be offering praise that belongs to God alone. This was the Pharisees' main complaint about Jesus all along. He was claiming to be the promised Messiah, even God himself. And in their minds, this was blasphemy of the highest order. Teacher, correct your disciples. Set them straight. It is not right for you to accept this praise and worship that belongs to God alone. I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' answer startling in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. He's saying, if there were no people praising me at this moment, then the rocks themselves would be praising me. Who is it who's riding on this donkey into Jerusalem? Well, he is the creator of all things, including the crowd, the Pharisees, and those rocks. He is the savior of the world who came to bring peace with God for all. He is the king of the universe who rules over it all. Basically, he's saying, I am worthy of the praise of all creation, including you Pharisees. Teacher, rebuke your disciples? I don't think so. You Pharisees are the ones in need of correction. Not me, not these my followers. Your hearts, Pharisees, are harder than these rocks. You will not praise me, but they would. So far, response number one to Jesus' coming, the people are celebrating and praising Jesus as the long-awaited son of David, the king who would be their military deliverer. The second response is from the Pharisees who are condemning and rejecting Jesus because he is accepting worship due to God alone. But how does Jesus himself respond to both the celebration and the condemnation? Well, let's look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept 
over it. Here he is in the midst of this great celebration where the people around him are praising and worshiping him and celebrating this great event, and he is weeping. And I don't think we can say it's just because of the Pharisees' rejection. This is nothing new. He has faced the Pharisees' hostility for a long time. But he weeps. And this is one of only two times that I'm aware of that Jesus weeps, or at least that it's recorded that he weeps. One is at Lazarus' tomb, and here is the second one. I find Jesus' response to be stunning. According to Zechariah's prophecy that we read earlier, Jesus' coming was to be a time of rejoicing. The crowd is celebrating this moment as expected. This is the time of rejoicing. So why is Jesus weeping? I believe Jesus' sorrow arose because both the crowds and the Pharisees missed the whole reason for his coming. Jesus is weeping out of a deep sorrow that arose because both the crowd and the Pharisees missed the whole reason for his coming. The people in the crowd rightly identify Jesus as the long-awaited king. As Jesus had pointed out to the Pharisees, it was right for the crowd to be praising him. He said, if they weren't praising me, the rocks would be. But they missed what he came to do. They had very wrong expectations. They did not understand that Jesus' coming, the Messiah's coming, would be in two stages. This was not the time for the merely earthly military conquest of the powerful Roman Empire. That is what they were expecting to happen, that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the kingdom in Jerusalem with Israel at the center. This was not the time for the merely earthly military conquest of the powerful Roman Empire. This was the time for an even greater conquest, a spiritual conquest over the powers of darkness, sin, evil, death, that he would accomplish by his coming death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. Yes, one day he would come back as the conquering king to rule over all the kingdoms of this world, but for now, his way was the way of suffering and death. On their behalf, for their rescue, for sin and death. So at this time, Jesus weeps because even in the midst of the crowd's celebration, they do not know who he really is and what he really came to do. Well, what about the Pharisees? The Pharisees rightly identified that no ordinary man deserves the praise and worship that Jesus was being given and which he was willing to receive. But the Pharisees refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, sent by God as promised throughout the scriptures to save them from their sins. So they totally rejected him as their Savior and King. In fact, in just a few days, they will demand that the Roman governor Pilate crucify Jesus. And during the course of that time, Pilate will ask them if he should crucify their king. The Pharisees' answer will spit in the face of God himself with the chilling words, we have no king but Caesar. They would rather choose allegiance to the hated Roman emperor 
than to Jesus Christ. We have no king but Caesar. By refusing to acknowledge Jesus as king, they were refusing to acknowledge God as king. They were the ones guilty of blasphemy of the highest order. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he is hearing two things. In one ear, he is hearing celebration. But it is a celebration that sadly totally misses what he came to do. They were expecting a military victory over the Roman government to set up the kingdom of Israel. In the other ear, he is hearing condemnation, which sadly is outright rejection of what he came to do. Can you hear the pain, the anguish of Jesus' heart in verse 42? He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? Both the celebration and the condemnation are coming from hearts that remain in darkness and continued separation from God. Both the celebration and the condemnation break his heart. And so Jesus weeps. Verses 43 and 44, he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. In sorrow, he tells them of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, Why? because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. He said, I am here, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, sent by God to save you, to rescue you. And you did not know the time of your visitation. Just as an aside, this destruction occurred about 40 years later, 70 AD, when the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem and destroyed it. Well, let's go back to Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, to see what happens when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus finally enters the city, and Matthew tells us that the whole city is stirred up. And they ask the key question of all of history, who is this? 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 This is a question for each of us this morning. How you answer this question determines both your eternal destiny as well as the stability and purpose of your life. So what is your belief about Jesus this morning? Are you undecided, unsure, a skeptic, an unbeliever, an agnostic perhaps, an atheist? Well, your eternal destiny hangs on how you answer the question that all of us must answer, all of us will answer. Someday, who is Jesus? Is he a figment of vivid imaginations, a legend, 
Someone who never really existed but makes for a nice story? Is he an historical figure who is very devout and a humble teacher, an example from whom we can learn a lot of helpful things? Or, as others have said, a deluded man with misguided ideas about his identity and his purpose? On this Palm Sunday, 2023, please accept this as your invitation to trust in Jesus for who he said he is, the Savior of all who believe in him. Jesus came the first time to save you from eternal death by his death and resurrection, as he promised. Jesus will come a second time for final eternal judgment, also, as he promised. And I ask you, if you're in one of those categories that I mentioned, not to make the mistake like the crowd made of misunderstanding who he is and why he came. He is not just a good person to learn nice things from. He's not a deluded man with some misguided ideas. I ask you also not to make the mistake the Pharisees made, denying your need for rescue and refusing to believe that Jesus is the one and only savior of the world. So whether you praise him for things he did not come to do, or you reject him outright, either way you have missed his purpose for your life and stand outside his kingdom of grace and mercy. And the sad and tragic result of either mistake is eternal separation from God. Well, what about those of us who are already believers in Jesus? We find ourselves in a very similar situation as those on this first Palm Sunday. We too have been waiting for over 2,000 years for Jesus to return, to fully establish his kingdom of righteousness and peace as he promised. Like the crowds, we can get very excited about what we think God is doing and then get very disenchanted and disappointed because we have misplaced expectations about who Jesus really is when life surprises us, when things don't work out the way we think they should. And it all comes down to how we answer the question, who is Jesus? How we answer that question, as I said, determines the stability and purpose of our lives here as we navigate life in this broken world while we wait for his return. When we are facing illness, disappointment, tragedy, hardship, death, what if there's no healing? What if there is no obvious victory? What if the circumstances get worse? Who is Jesus? Do you ever feel that way? Even if you believe that God is directing your life, is he doing so into circumstances that just don't make sense and are in fact painful, harmful, threatening? Is that what he promised to those who follow him? As I was preparing this, I thought of an illustration from our own lives. We moved to this area in July of 1999. As we made that move, I knew that we would greatly need God's help greatly need God's help to find the school for our kids, to find a church, to find a house. But I wasn't worried about finding a job because I was a doctor. I started looking for a job, job in March of that year before we moved. No job. We moved to, into an apartment here in July. No job. We made an offer on a house. Still, no job. But not to worry, we weren't closing until October. 
So I just needed to have a job by then. Sometime along the way, God revealed to me my arrogance in thinking that I didn't need God's help for a job. He was showing me otherwise. Now that I had learned that lesson, I was sure he would provide the right job at just the right time. And sure enough, finally, on a Friday afternoon, seven days before closing on the house, I was called with a job offer. Isn't God so good to bail me out and at just the right time? Then the following Monday, three days later, four days before closing on the house, my new boss called me back to say he was withdrawing the job offer because the people I would be working with refused to work with me. I was devastated. For the first time in the whole process, I broke down sobbing. I thought I had God's plan all figured out, how it was going to work. He was going to reveal to me my arrogance. I was going to ask his forgiveness, and he was going to provide a job at just the right time, and everything was going to be fine. How wrong I was. He certainly took care of us. I can testify now that when God is involved, a bank may give you a mortgage to someone who's not even employed. That did happen. But this did not work out anywhere close to how I thought it would work out. Yet despite how it felt at the time, Jesus was working all along as our king and as our savior. You've had times like that as well, maybe even today. Times that circumstances just don't seem to make sense or just don't work out the way you think they should. During those times, it's very hard to trust that Jesus really loves us, that he knows exactly what, is, what he's doing. Is he really in charge? Is he really the king? We can be much like those confused by Jesus' triumphal entry that led to death by crucifixion instead of a military conquest. But as the crucifixion ultimately gave way to resurrection, so we can be sure that Jesus is always the king and his work cannot be stopped by people with wrong expectations or outright rejection, including us. God has been is and always will be at work throughout history over long periods of time in us, around us, and through us to accomplish his great purposes, his perfect purposes as the king of the universe. So while we wait for the day of Jesus' return, we can rehearse the words of Zechariah, behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. You can be sure that your king is coming, just as he said he would. And look at who he is today, right now in your life, in light of his promised second coming. He is the king and savior coming back for you. He came once to die on the cross for our sins. He is coming back for us to make all things right. That's who Jesus is. Until then, let's not get trapped Let's not be like the crowd and expect things to work out the way we think they should. And don't be like the Pharisees and reject him because you don't like what he's doing. Instead, let's live by faith in God in the midst of our most troubling circumstances, confident in Jesus as our powerful and loving king. He always has been, always will be. 
Even if we don't see it now, his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So on this Palm Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, behold, your king is coming to you. That should get us up in the morning to face another day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this record of this Palm Sunday that you have given to us. One that we rightly pause to remember the celebration and the praise that is given to you on this grand entrance. And yet as we look at your response of weeping, we recognize that both groups of people, the crowds and the Pharisees, missed the whole point of your coming. One looking for this great military victory, the other outright rejecting you. Help us not to be like them, Lord, in our own lives, whether believers or unbelievers, but help us to trust you that you are the king of the universe, always at work to accomplish your great purposes. And Father, I pray now that as we pause to take this time of communion together, that you would bless our time, recognize that this is the very reason that you came, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised from the dead, that we may have new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.